Hi there, friends. Good to be here. This isn't going here. It's going here. My name is Misty Denman, and I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. And as always, I'm so glad to be here with you today. Um, there's actually kind of no place I'd rather be. And I've noticed that as every teacher has stood up here, one of the things most of us have said is why we have loved, or that we've really loved this study of Matthew and why. And I've heard it from some of you as well. And this week I was thinking the same thing. It's sort of been um, a really exciting study to me. And for different reasons for all of us, and the word shows us different things every time we read it. For me, what I've seen in Matthew um, as I've gone through it this time is just a different aspect of Jesus' personality and character than I've seen before, I think. And it kind of reminds me of, have you ever had um, like an encounter with an old friend who you thought you knew really well, or maybe an older family member, and all that they'll tell you a story that you'd never heard before, and all of a sudden it's like, I don't think I really ever knew you. That's a whole different side of you. And I've had that with Jesus um, as we've studied Matthew. Particularly, I think, in these chapters, I have seen a just genius to his Words. I mean, wouldn't you love to be able to say so much with so few words like he has? But also just his ability to cut through um, all of the superfluous stuff and get right to the heart of the matter. And I think it's really caused me to fall in love with him um, even more. And I know you all have your reasons for loving this study and just... Jesus in the book of Matthew as well. So we, um, you probably realized through your homework this, this week that we have a lot of ground to cover. So we are going to jump right into it. Chapters 11 and 12 were jam-packed, lots of good stuff. So I'm going to begin reading in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, if you would like to follow along with me. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who was to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So here and in the verses that follow, Jesus will offer reassurance to John the Baptist and to the crowds around him. It was several chapters back that we lost, last talked about John the Baptist. A lot has happened in his life that hasn't been covered or recorded in Matthew. So... Why is he in prison, and why does he now doubt Jesus? Recall with me that John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin, the one who leapt in his mother's womb when Mary came to um, visit his mother, Elizabeth, who seemed to understand even before birth who Jesus was, who we read was filled with the Spirit from birth. He grew up into this man that the Word says was great before the Lord, and he was a man who was wholeheartedly devoted to preparing the hearts of Israel to receive Jesus as their king and their Messiah. And while there were those, um, and, and, and while there were those who understood and followed Jesus, we know that the Pharisees were not among them. 
John is in prison now because he has really boldly, courageously spoken out against King Herod and his wife, who um, was not a great lady, and you will find out more about her in a couple of weeks. He spoke out, and because of that, he has been imprisoned, um, calling them out on their immorality. And so here John is, this great man of the outdoors. I picture him always as this very sort of big and robust man in personality. He is in um, what would probably have been a very uh, uncomfortable prison cell. He, it's probably dark, it's indoors when we know he loved to be outdoors. He was a passionate, vibrant preacher who loved Jesus, loved preaching the word, I think, and he has been silenced. I also just kind of think he was probably a really optimistic person by nature. I could be wrong, but that's how I picture him. And I think that he was probably expecting that when Israel heard the message that the kingdom of God was here and saw what Jesus was doing, that they would repent and that they would embrace Jesus. Instead, there has been confusion, there's been apathy, there's been even some... um, quite a bit, actually, by the Pharisees of just some outright rejection of him. And so I think with everything that he loved and expected stripped from him, uh, this man of deep faith and conviction has just begun to doubt. John questions Jesus' identity, and that's why he sends his people to say, are you the one? Instead of being angry, I love that Jesus brings encouragement He defends John before the listening and curious crowds. And the way he encourages John is by um, pointing to the miracles as proof of who he is. But by mentioning these particular miracles, he's actually doing a little bit more than that. Every one of the miracles that Jesus mentions here was a direct fulfillment of prophecy from the book of uh, Isaiah, which John would have been no doubt familiar with. So not only is Jesus reassuring John by pointing out what he's done, but he's also presenting evidence that he is the fulfillment of Scripture, just one after another here. But what do we learn from John's doubt Um, And Jesus' response, I think the first thing is, we should remember that John was this great man of God, and yet his difficult circumstances and just his finite understanding of the world around him did cause him to question and doubt. And that tells me that no matter uh, how strong my walk with the Lord is, no matter what our maturity level, uh, level is, we can find ourselves in that same place from one time to another. I know I'm learning these days to recognize my own um, frailties and sinful tendencies. Rather than gloss over them, um, I think I'm learning through John um, and the study in particular to just really lean hard into God and allow him to strengthen um, and teach me and to watch carefully what he does in the world around me, even when it doesn't seem like he's doing much in my own life, uh, which he probably is. I just don't always have the eyes to see it. Second, notice that Jesus offered reassurance and encouragement to John in these ways. He first reminded John to look beyond his own suffering and his disappointments to what he was doing in the world around him. He was healing diseases. He was raising up disciples. He was preaching these most profound words ever spoken. John himself was out of the game for the time being, but God wasn't out of the game. 
He never was, and he never will be. Look with me at Isaiah 14 on your verse sheet. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? The answer is no one and nothing. When life is tough, when our hopes and dreams have been crushed, when we feel desperate, as we all will from time to time, look at who Jesus is. Dwell on what you know to be true of God. I'm trying to learn to do this as well. We can dwell on his heart, on his character, on the great lengths he has gone to make a way for us to be reconciled to him and remember when he has showed up for us in the past. Look for where he's at work all around you and let that remind us of how good and great he is. Sometimes we've got to look beyond our own circumstances to cling to that faith. Also, dive deep into his word. Jesus used um, scripture to encourage John. We will see Jesus use scripture in a variety of ways both today and throughout our study of Matthew We'll find everything we need to hold on to our faith and hope in these pages here. We get to see his power, his patience, his love, um, his miracles, his truth fulfilled, his promises. This is the place where there's an arsenal of weapons where we can combat our own doubt and discouragement when hard time comes our way. I know that you know that because you're here today, but sometimes in our darkest um, moments we forget. And I'm just praying that both uh, you and I would remember that. In the NIV, verse 6 says, Blessed is the man, or blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. God will bless us when we cling to our faith, even when we don't understand what he is up to. In the next few verses, Jesus turns to the crowd that had no doubt overheard the, um, John's disciples come and question Jesus. uh, Jesus defends John before all them. This is actually also a way for him to um, teach them some great truth about himself. It's an opportunity for Jesus to stop the crowds from following that line of doubtful thinking that that John had. And I love here that John did not criticize, or that Jesus did not criticize John. He did not discount the great man of faith he had been before this doubting. Uh, But he praised his strength in his ministry before the people. Such a loving way that God handled this. Now, we're going to come back to some of these verses in a minute. But for now, would you drop down to verses uh, 20 through 24 of chapter 11? This is part of the same conversation, and Jesus changes his line of thought here just a little bit. He says, then it says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. We know that Sodom was destroyed because of its sin. 
But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. You may remember that Amy mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Matthew was written for a Jewish audience. And sometimes what was written here would have been more easy to understand um, for the uh, Jews who are reading it than it is for today. We needed a little extra um, explanation here to make sense of this. These cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, were Jewish cities where most of Jesus' miracles were performed. Capernaum was his hometown. He spent much time there. People would have known him personally, uh, just his character and what he did day to day, plus would have witnessed his miracles. Can you even imagine getting to live in one of those places where Jesus just lived and did his thing? I think it's amazing. It was a great privilege these um, cities had and the people within them, and yet most people in these towns just refused to believe him. And the other cities that Jesus mentions were Gentile cities, really with particularly shameful reputations. And yet, Jesus says he will judge those Gentile sinful cities less less harshly then he will judge uh, Israel because Israel had him right there in their midst, and yet they refused to see him for who he was. I want you to notice in verse 20 that Jesus specifically reprimands these cities and people within them because they did not repent. So I want to talk about exactly what that word repent means because it's used many times throughout Matthew. Jesus uses it often. John the Baptist used it often, but it's not a word we use all that much in our everyday speech. We don't even use it that much really in a church setting anymore. The repentance uh, that is spoken of here simply means changing one's mind about Christ. It would be a turning away from disbelief and by faith, trusting that Jesus is who he says he is. Um, and is, um, is God's son. When Jesus was teaching and performing miracles in Capernaum, his desire was that every person would repent from their unbelief and place a saving faith in him. In the same way, he hadn't died yet, but in the same way, he desires that, when, that we place our um, faith in his death and resurrection, turning away or repenting from our previous unbelief. As we've seen throughout Matthew, a major stumbling block for the Jews was that they could not get past this assumption that their heritage um, would be enough for them to be a part of God's kingdom. Not only was it not enough to just be a descendant of Abraham or Moses or King David, what he's saying here is that it was actually worse to be Jewish and not accept him as their Messiah and King because they had so much knowledge, um, far more than the Gentiles did. They had the Old Testament scriptures that pointed time and again to Jesus. They had their own teachers and church leadership that should have understood and recognized Jesus for who he was and helped draw the people to him. They had Jesus himself right there, and they were held to a higher standard because of this. Now, when I look around at our unlimited access to his word, to excellent teaching, to podcasts, and to, um, to books, and to uh, every kind of um, version of scripture that there is, I can't help but think that this generation of uh, Christians will be held to a higher standard than other believers at other times and places without such privilege. Jesus says this in Luke 12, 48. Look with me. 
Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I think this verse can sort of strike fear in our hearts when we think about um, what Jesus is saying here. But instead of fear, I am hoping that this will, this truth will just help us to choose every day to cling to God's word, to take advantage of and be thankful for all of the teaching and um, access to scripture that we have, and to grow in spiritual maturity and be his hands and feet in the places that need it. Now, I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. If you didn't think that, you wouldn't be here, but I think it's always a good reminder to us because it's easy to... Um, just sort of take for granted what we have that so many generations of believers haven't. Now look back with me at verse 11, if you would, of chapter 11. So 11, 11. And that verse says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I think this verse can be sort of confusing at first blush, but I think it has great meaning for us. So let's look at it closely. Jesus starts out by telling us that John is the greatest of all men. And that's because he got to be God's messenger, the very last of the Old Testament prophets. He's sort of a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He got to be the one prophet that introduced Jesus to the world. Other prophets would foretell about um, Jesus coming. He got to walk the earth with Jesus and tell everybody, he's here now. Uh, no prophet, no man ever had a greater um, or higher calling than that. And yet Jesus says that those of us who are least in the kingdom of heaven are greater. And so what does that mean? Jesus' life, death, and resurrection really ushered in a whole new era for us that was greater than any before. God certainly was with his people in the Old Testament, was working in their lives and in the world. We know that from everything we have uh, read and learned in the Old Testament. But with Jesus came this opportunity for man to be fully reconciled to be God, to be adopted into his family, to be filled with his spirit. And so the most inconsequential, um, the most unknown Christian among us really has a... Um, greater blessing and privilege than John ever did because John died before he got to see Jesus um, resurrected. That is a great blessing for us. Jesus offered tender reassurance to his servant John when doubt arose in his heart, but we have this reassurance from Jesus as well. Through the cross of Christ, we have the great privilege and blessing of entering the kingdom of heaven. I am praying that we will not take that for granted and that we will praise God for that every day. Now we're going to skip over the rest of chapter 11. It is beautiful and great and come back to it uh, later. So for now, move on with me to chapter 12, verse 1. And I'm going to read this first story um, in verses 1 through 8 in chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. 
He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. That's referring to himself. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So here we see that conflict arises over the lawfulness of Jesus' activities on the Sabbath. I don't think it was any accident or coincidence that Jesus walked his disciples by this grain field on the Sabbath, knowing that they would be hungry. It offered some profound uh, truth or or opportunity for Jesus to uh, really teach some profound truth about what really matters to him. But what was really all the fuss about here? If you go back to the book of Leviticus, which comes after uh, Exodus that we studied last, um, last fall, God gave his people some laws. They were really meant to be very uh, compassionate. One of those was one in which a farmer was asked or told not to harvest the grain that would be around the edges of his field. He would leave that as it was. And that was so that widows, orphans, anyone in need could um, go by and and pluck some of that grain from the edges. It would be just enough for those that were in need and have something to eat, a way to feed themselves. The edges of the field were where these disciples were when they plucked that bit of grain. So my granddad was a cattle rancher. He also had a few fields of hay to feed his um, cattle and a few fields of wheat. And just one time I remember when I was a little girl, he took me with him to check his fields. Uh, They were just about ready to be harvested. And I remember him being um, really excited to um, show me how you could pluck a stalk of wheat and, you know, the top of it, you could rub it between your hands like this and the little kernels of ripe wheat would come out in your hand and you could pop those in your mouth and eat them. Now, I remember seeing his excitement on his face and thinking, gross, this is gummy and it has no flavor and it takes a lot of them to even have one mouthful, but I'm sure if you were hungry, if I had been hungry, I would have been very glad to have that. Um, These men surely were glad to have that, and maybe they knew some way to do something with it other than what I knew. I don't know. The Pharisees, um, who we know were all about adding their own man-made laws on top of what God intended, considered plucking that stem of wheat to be reaping. They considered rubbing that wheat between their hands to be threshing, and they considered blowing the chaff away after you had the wheat kernels to be winnowing. Now, that ridiculousness in no way reflected what God's heart was for, um, for, his, for the Sabbath laws um, or for the, just the heart of his people. Those Sabbath laws were meant to be a blessing to his people. They were meant to provide the people with a way to be rested and refreshed and rejuvenated and restored and to worship him. There's also, by the way, a law in Leviticus that that prohibited people from fasting on the Sabbath. So if these men were hungry, um, 
they were permitted to get something to eat. It wasn't preparing a meal. It was picking a few grains of wheat there. The true spirit of the law certainly allowed for this activity. Now, in order to make his point, Jesus, again, uses scripture, and he refers back to a story in 1 Samuel 21. There's really a lot of underlying um, pointedness going on here because those Pharisees who are supposed to be such masters of scripture and the law, he's using scripture kind of to point out what they don't know and to use that um, to make his point, showing his authority over um, over scripture in the law. Now, the story goes back to a time when King David, he wasn't king yet, actually, but when David was in a battle for his life, he was on the run, he had some men with him, he was hungry, and they go into the, he and his men go into the tabernacle, and the priests that are there give him uh, the uh, bread that would have been an offering. We remember some of this from Exodus. That bread that was set aside just for the priest, they give it to David and his men to eat because they are hungry. Uh, if you go back and look very carefully at that story, you'll see that David made himself and his men ceremonially, ceremonially clean before he went into the tabernacle. Um, you'll see that the priest willingly gave him the bread. David didn't just go and snatch it um, and take it without asking. And my point with that is that Jesus did not ever just toss out the law or interpret it even in a different way than he originally meant it. Instead, he asserts his authority to interpret the law according to truth. He is the final authority on what the law uh, means. The Pharisees don't understand that because they don't understand that he is the Messiah. Since he is God, he is the law, he is the word, he wrote it himself, and he can therefore interpret it any way he wants to. And as he did on the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus' teaching and interpretation of the law here really centers on the heart and not the external application or uh, compliance that really had no meaning behind it. Much of what was happening here, not just with Sabbath law, but across the board, was, were placing unnecessary burdens on the hearts of the people that God loved and Jesus did not like this. Look on your verse sheet with me at what Jesus says from chapter 5. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will, enter, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Our righteousness comes from being covered in the blood of Christ. It does not come from um, empty observance of the law. Um, so we do not have to worry about our righteousness not exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees because Jesus has given us his righteousness. Uh, have you found it hard in this week's study and maybe in the weeks before not to be critical of the Pharisees and not to judge them? I've spent hours trying not to be judgmental of the Pharisees, but as always happens when you start judging either Israel or the Pharisees or whoever it is, you start to realize how uh, similar our tendencies are to them. There's truth here for us too. Uh, let us not forget as we move through this study that Jesus cares about our hearts and not just our behavior too. So I was convicted as I was just talking to the Lord about being just not liking the Pharisees at all and, and being real judgmental about them that 
When I have an interaction with somebody and I speak real sweet words to them on the outside and then walk away and kind of daydream about all the ways God might punish them for how mean they are or how this they are or how that they are, I'm a Pharisee too because <laughs> Jesus cares about our heart. He told me to um, pray for my enemies and for those who persecute me, and it's not really real persecution that I'm experiencing, but the, the idea still holds true. And so I have... Um, I've learned to be a little less judgmental of the Pharisees. But until the point is that until we really surrender our own hearts to God's will, we're not where we need to be either. And um, I, I am being very convicted in this study that my heart needs to yield to God. My heart needs to yield to God too. What follows is another story in the following verses about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. He, um, in this story, Jesus had healed a man, man's hand that had been withered and useless probably for his entire life. Again, you can imagine what joy there was with this man. Uh, most people would have had to make a living, everybody probably would have had to make a living with their hands. Um, it would have been a very difficult life for him. Look with me. Um, and the response that the Pharisees give really show how far away the, uh, that they have moved from God's um, calling here. Look with me just at verses um, 12 through chapter 12, um, verse 14. And that says, hang on, I've lost it. But the Pharisees went out and conspired to conspired against him how to destroy him. This We've seen it coming for a long time, but this verse seems to be the uh, final break, the official break between the Jewish leadership and Jesus. These uh, men who counted themselves very holy are now conspiring to kill Jesus, and there won't be any turning back from that, as we'll see in the chapters to come. Now follow along with me. I'm going to skip down to verse 22. In chapter 12, then a demon-oppressed demon man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he, Jesus, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And those versus the strong man would be um, either Satan or his demons. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Okay, did anybody scratch their head a little bit at these verses? Um, we again see Jesus' power and compassion as he heals this man who is blind and mute and demon-possessed. 
And again, I think it's worth stopping and considering what it would have been like for that man to be able to see and hear and speak and to have that um, evil spirit within him just be gone. Many who saw it were in awe, but um, the Pharisees attributed Jesus' healing power to Satan. The first thing that Jesus does in response to the Pharisees is to keep his cool, which is something I think only Jesus could have done. It makes the hair on my arm stand up every time I... um, read about these men who attributed God's goodness and healing power to Satan, but that's what they did. Uh, Jesus logically lays out this argument that Satan wouldn't work against himself. Therefore, it made no sense that to attribute overcoming demonic sources to Satan. He then further develops this just super logical, rational train of thought to conclude that If this wasn't done by the power of Satan, it was certainly something supernatural. It had to be done by God's power. And if Jesus uh, possessed the power of God, which he clearly did, then he was the Messiah. He had this airtight logic, I love it, that really exposed their illogical accusations. At this point, the Pharisees are squarely turned against him. But I think there were a lot of people around there who were torn. I think there were those who watched this all unfold and were just trying to figure out for themselves, were they going to follow their own leadership, which the Pharisees were, their own um, community and church leadership, or were they going to follow Jesus? And so when Jesus says in verse 30 that whoever is not with him is against them, his against him. What he's really warning here is against uh, lack of decision or neutrality. Neutrality is the same as rejection. No decision about Jesus would be the same as, um, it really would be a decision about Jesus, a negative decision, and that would be a tragic one. So for the Pharisees who've already decided, their case is pretty much closed, but he's speaking here to all of those who were undecided, um, and to those who are undecided in our world now as well. Jesus continues down this line of thought. He warns the Pharisees that they are committing the one unforgivable sin. And this is where he makes that difficult statement where he says, every sin can be given, forgiven except the, uh, that of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So in a general sense, blasphemy is speaking... Um, profanity or slandering God, speaking profanity against or slandering God. And certainly these men, when they watched Jesus perform this great miracle and attributed that miracle to the power of Satan, were speaking great blasphemy. But the sin isn't just the words themselves. What it really is, is that heart behind their words. Jesus, or God the Father could not forgive that sin that they were committing of completely rejecting Jesus. That's what you see happening here. Um, Jesus had healed this man by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God and is proving that they are fully rejecting him. And that's the one sin that can't be forgiven. And even though we don't use the same language that we see here today, that truth still holds, the one and only unforgivable sin in our time, the only one that results in eternal separation from God is rejecting the person of Jesus. 
He came to seek and to save the lost, but he cannot save these foolish men who count themselves so righteous and holy that they don't see their own need for a Savior, don't see that he is the Savior. In the following verses that are a continuation of this really deadly serious interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, he will point out again that because our words are a reflection of our heart, he will hold us accountable for every word that we speak. Again, I think this is one of those places in Scripture that sort of stops us in our tracks. Look with me at Luke 6.45 on your verse sheet. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. True for the Pharisees and true for us. Jesus is not done with the Pharisees yet. Pick back up with me in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given, will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Again, that is Jesus speaking about himself. And we're going to stop right there. Time and again, we've seen Jesus reach out and heal those who were in need. We've seen people who asked to be healed, and he answered them um, in an affirmative way. He refuses here because he knows, because he's God, that the Pharisees aren't truly uh, wanting healing from him. What they're looking for is a way to entrap him and use his miracles against them. They've already had plenty of opportunities to see and believe if they were going to do that. So he responds to them in this very cryptic way that I don't think that they would have been able to understand at the time because he's speaking of his future um, death and three days in the tomb, which was foreshadowed by Jonah's three days in the belly of a whale. And just as an aside, Jesus uh, uh, clearly is talking about Jonah um, being in the fish as an accurate historical um, thing and not as a as something that really happened, not just as a story or myth, and we should believe the same. They wouldn't have had, the the men wouldn't have had any way of making this connection yet between Jonah's three days in the belly of the whale and um, Jesus' three days in um, in the tomb. But he uses this kind of language again because they have already rejected him. And in some ways, I think it is a gift to them. He's not heaping additional uh, opportunity to be judged on them because he's not giving them any additional information uh, that would be really helpful for them in a way uh, to help them understand him because they've already rejected him fully. But once again, he's pointing out, uh, I think very similarly to when he said, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, he's pointing out that the truly, truly evil Ninevites were quick to repent when Jonah preached a message of God's warning to them. They heeded God's message. Jesus' own people are not. 
Anytime I think we see uh, scripture repeat an idea or a theme or a phrase, it means it's important. He's said that multiple times in these passages. Uh, we, um, sh- we, we need to pay attention to that as important. Israel will be held responsible for turning a blind eye to Jesus. Now the final section of chapter 12 says this, beginning in verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother." Now, as a mom, I'm in Mary's shoes when I read this scripture. I've always um, kind of been taken aback by it when I read it. But, uh, and what I want to say is, are you kidding me? Do you know how much Jesus or Mary did for you, Jesus? But that is the wrong interpretation of this scripture, a wrong way of thinking at it or thinking about it. In the parallel section of scripture in Mark, we get some additional information about Jesus' own family that I think is helpful here. Look with me at Mark 3 on your verse sheet. It says, And he, Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Now, although later much of Jesus' own family would understand and believe who he was, even during his ministry, his own family had many doubts about him. Even so, he is not rejecting his own family here. Instead, he is expanding the meaning of what family means, and it's to include the whole body of believers. His family now includes you and I and everyone who has a saving faith in him. I love this truth. The strongest and most binding relationship we will ever have is with Jesus. Even over our own family, who we love so dearly, our strongest and most binding loyalty we should ever have is to Jesus. Even over our own family, who we love so dearly, I find these verses to be a great gift because they are the promise to us of being adopted into his family as his own um, as his children, as his brothers, as his sisters. He is claiming us here as his own. Jesus responded to the criticism of his opponents with strength and with truth, and he revealed his heart that all people would turn from their unbelief and know him as God. We can worship him when our response is to continually seek to understand his true character and to place ourselves under his divine authority. It's not always easy, but it is always worthwhile. Now, let's go back to the end of chapter 11. In some ways, I think I've saved the best for last. This is a great passage that I think brings uh, sort of soothing and healing to our soul after some real heavy things we've been talking about today. I'm going to read in chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. 
At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And when he speaks of little children here, the wise and understanding are those who think that they are wise and understanding, the Pharisees, and the little children are those who can um, understand and accept his message with humility. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." Here, Jesus calls and he rewards his followers. He prays to his Father with thanksgiving and praise, and he reveals that perfect relationship that he has uh, with his Father. And then he gives these incredible words of grace and blessing. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. One of the things that has stood out to me in Matthew is how often when Jesus heals, he reached out his hands to touch the person who needed healing. These verses to me feel like Jesus reaching out his hands to us to heal us in our hearts. He is offering us his rest, and I know there's not one of us here who wouldn't appreciate his rest. Now, the immediate burden that Jesus speaks of here is those heavy man-made laws that the Pharisees added to what God intended for their people. Those extra laws were written by man and not by God, um, and it caused people who wanted to do the right thing um, and to please God to, to feel like it was impossible to do that. They would work and work to be righteous and holy and never feel like they could get there. Jesus offers his rest instead through a yoke of discipleship directly to him. Um, and that would mean just learning directly from him. Now, a yoke, of course, you've probably seen pictures of it, is that wooden frame that go, it would go across the neck of two animals, usually oxen, so that they could work together. When a farmer needed to train a young and experienced ox, he would yoke it to a larger, um, much more experienced ox. And that older ox would be able to both guide and lead the young one and show him how to um, plow a straight line, but he also would carry the majority of the workload on, on his back until that younger oxen grew up and was able to do the same. And all the while, that young ox is learning by watching and being connected to the old one how to do what it is he has to do. When we choose to yoke ourselves directly to Jesus, he will show us. He will show us how to live out God's will. He will change and mold our hearts to be more like his. He gives us his Holy Spirit, which is the only thing that empowers us to um, walk with him. No longer do we have to strive and work and try on our own to do the right thing we're connected to Jesus, and he is 
um, with us in that. He is pulling us along with him. Um, we can let go of trying to do the right thing on our own and just rest in the hope and power and um, discipleship that Jesus gives us. Jesus has showed us so much of who he is in these chapters today. We are his followers, and with great love, he calls us to himself every day. And when we answer his call, we get to find the grace and the peace and the rest that our souls long for, because being his disciple really just means walking with him moment by moment and hour by hour and day by day. We study his word, we talk to him, we listen to him, and he teaches us how to live life his good and perfect way. I want you to look with me before we close at Jeremiah 6, 16. This is what the Lord says. Stop at the crossroads and look around. Ask for the old godly way and walk in it. Travel its path and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for your outstanding and overwhelming just goodness. Um, I thank you for calling us to you. I thank you because I know it's only by your spirit that any of us um, were able to understand you and trust you and see you for who you really are. Thank you for um, making a way for us to do that. Thank you for dying for us. Um, would you help us, God, to seek you? Would you help us to learn from you? Would you help us to follow you, to worship you? And I just thank you for giving us the promise of rest for our weary souls. Um, we don't deserve it, but you give it to us anyway. I pray for your hand of blessing over every woman that's here today. Um, I thank you that we get to be your disciples, that um, we get to live under your will, and that you are willing to yoke yourself to us. And it's in your good and holy name we pray. Amen.